So I'm saying in the VIX, very easy. I would say even in equities and fixed income, you have the same thing going on. If you buy the S&P when the realized vol is low, you typically lose money. When you buy the when the realized vol is high, you typically make money. And effectively, you can use volatility only uh, as a way to time the S&P or equity indices, just because of the way people are trading it and the way people are sizing their positions. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Now, let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. You can trade against it, which is what uh, all those uh, mean reversion models that you see today are, right? So, so I mean... So I, I think I, I think I agree with you. Yeah. Meaning, <laughs> meaning, just making sure that I I fully understand. But 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 it's true, and and I think it's true as as well in in the trend following space that those firm who really find something unique to do, they could be called a trend follower. But if they do something unique, yeah. and we see that there are you know a few of them yeah. that have delivered good returns, even though as as I noticed. The B top fifty index, which is the biggest twenty biggest firms in the industry, since nineteen ninety, there's been seven negative years. Six of them has come since two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah, you're right. I mean, so the the majority doesn't seem to be adapting well. Yeah. But there are people who truly find unique ways of dealing with this, and and yes. and in a sense. I feel that investors are unfortunately mm -hmm. going for the the classical cheap solution, yeah. not knowing that they're leaving all the returns yeah. for others just because they charge a little bit more. And, and that's really unfortunate for the end investor. Sure. It, it, retail always loses. I, can, I'm not, I don't think CTAs are going to break that rule. So the more convincing in, uh, in a certain period an investment is, the more likely you're going to lose money. So this is why uh, you know, sophisticated investors at a certain level are able to stay ahead of the market and allocate when a strategy is losing as opposed to try to chase returns. Mm. Chasing returns, which feels amazing, uh, you can have anybody you know, for, uh, do it, typically is counterproductive. So... A lot of our brain is designed uh, to chase returns, like uh, on a strategy level or an investment or, you know, Bitcoin or whatever. So the upside of a bubble, it, it's easy to convince people to come in, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, there's a delicate balance where this is where, you know, uh, you have to know yourself and know where you're coming from and realize that you're, uh, the scientific approach in investment is not the same as a scientific approach in, a, in an external process, which is independent. Uh, investing is a very complex process where uh, your perception of a market affects future returns. And your perception, because our brains think contagiously, so it means if I'm thinking something, if I feel something, everybody in this room is a little bit feeling the same thing. Uh, in, especially in the investment world, it's very contagious. 
people all believe the same thing at the same time and there's major cycles that ha that happen uh, to be able to isolate yourself so first realizing having all the techniques in place that you're evaluating the scientific aspect of an investment the way that consultants do that's not enough then you have to go further and have a, a certain uh, courage to invest where nobody else wants to allocate at that point in time. And that requires a certain aspect of self-knowledge. This is that whole, the requirements to be successful in uh, CTA investments are not the same as other aspects of life. So uh, it requires a certain personality characteristics, which are not, you know, I would say not common. People have to take those into account when they're allocating to smart beta. Otherwise, it's going to become the same uh, losing game over and over. You can use what investors think to, you know, as a contra uh, contrarian indicator. Mm. Yeah. What about... What, let me, let me yeah, add one thing. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, uh, smart beta, I would say, or, uh, you know, the longer term indices haven't done well also because the opportunity set. It's been a very, very extreme macro environment. Right. Central banks have about 20 trillion in assets globally that they've bought that can they continue to buy in the last couple of years. So the lower the vol, uh, the bigger the impact of crowding. So when the vol expands, the stops become more spread out. Uh, and then effectively, there's much more liquidity available for the typical trend-following models. I don't see the fact that CTAs have had six years out of seven uh, negative in the last uh, few years as a negative. If you take convexity into account, again, you're long an option. You're still getting it cheaper with long-term CTAs than you're getting it, uh, buying it directly in, in equities, for example. Yeah, yeah, so it's still yeah, valuable. Yeah. I want to stay on, on, on a topic that, you know, I think, I think 2017 probably was the year where, to many investors, VIX really became known, right? Everybody suddenly talked about the VIX, right? And, yeah. uh, and it's been a little bit under the radar beforehand. And so, so what do you, what, what's your opinion? Um, you know, what is the impact of the growth of VIX sort of volatility trading in in sort of the, you know, in, 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 in our industry, but maybe also outside the industry? Sure. Um, so uh, certain investments that don't have a great risk-adjusted returns can temporarily turn into amazing bubbles because the return stream has certain characteristics which gives time for other investors to come in. So it becomes very self-reinforcing, mm -hmm. like a positive feedback loop. Uh, and there's ways where in certain industries you can reinforce that intentionally. If you're an activist investor, you put on a position and then you, you say, here, I, I got my position, other people come in, you can do great. You're effectively, it's like a pump and dump of uh, penny stocks in the 80s, right? So cryptocurrencies are a little bit the same thing. They're being promoted. I mean, I'm receiving text messages here and there saying, buy this, only this much for each account, whatever. So effectively, these things are being a little bit manipulated. And in the same way, um, regulators, in a way, if they don't control these things can it can be very very harmful for investors in the long term so in the case of the vix starting from uh, the fed put uh, starting two th 2009 which was basically the market is not going to go down 50 percent anymore it's only going to go down 20 then you had the uh, equity hedge funds which had always oh, since it's going to go down 20 only i'm going to buy it at minus 15 then uh, because the minus 15 is there then you had short-term uh, swing traders who bought at a minus 10 then you had short-term CTAs who bought it at minus five. Then you had artificial intelligence or mean, uh, machine learning techniques which said buy it at minus three. So it's become a very self-reinforcing 
where uh, effectively people are now justifying that the economy is uh, doing great and that's why the vol is low. Uh, there's an aspect of the reality is markets lead the economy and not the other way around. And I would say today what's going on in the equity world and the VIX in particular has become a very self-reinforcing bubble, which is suppressing the vol in the market. So when the VIX or when an implied vol in the market comes down, when people sell options on the market, until those options expire, effectively you have mean reversion trading. If the market goes down, the option sellers are buyers of that market as it's going down and the option uh, sellers are sellers of the market when it goes up. So they suppress the vol of the market. Typically, that lasts until the, the options expire. So look at the you know, open interest in a, in a market. Where was this? Uh, what drove the implied vol compression? Options of this maturity, that's typically when you're going to see the mean reversion at that market, then it typically breaks out. Okay. Yeah. So the VIX is a, it's a, quite a serious thing because a lot of, um, I'm going to say, very sophisticated investors are putting large amounts of money at play in it. And based on uh, volatility, uh, normalized uh, risk techniques, they think they're taking very little risk. On, the, on that note, Nicole, I think that, um, you know, we talk about, you mentioned the word manipulation, there's the VIX, you talk about big trades and, and so on and so forth. But I think there was an article in, 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 in Bloomberg recently that, that mentions that uh, on December 20th last year, 2017, the quote-unquote VIX elephant put on a very large position, something like 260,000 lots. And, and, and the article went on to talk about how relatively easy it is to manipulate the settlement, which has a huge impact if you're you know, if you're trading options and you're waiting for expiry, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, do you have any thoughts about this? And because one of the things that our industry has always been known for is liquidity. You, you, we're not manipulating markets. We're not creating trends. We're not doing anything like this. The VIX seems a little bit out of the ordinary when it comes to this. <laughs> the VIX, by the way, in 2017, there was a six-month period with a sharp ratio and it was 15. On the Euro VIX, it was 30. Right. Uh, so... Yes, it's a little bit out of the norm. Right. <laughs> I would say like a hundred times yeah. over. Yeah. But uh, uh, yes, so the, the, with volatility, the amount of risk or the amount of gamma that you have in the market is uh, highly variable over time as you approach expiration. So you come in and you say my vol is this and my uh, my delta to the market is that, and then as you expo uh, as you, as you approach expiration your gamma or the level of mean reversion that you're willing to do or the, the amount of liquidity you're effectively providing to the market increases exponentially. So I would say in particular, it's easy to manipulate the VIX. And uh, today in an industry where I would say there's a, is potentially some uh, misalignment of interest between uh, the interest of hedge fund managers where they participate in the upside but not the downside towards year end, they could be quite strong incentives uh, to make sure that the market stays where it needs to be for you know a good payout uh, year end. So effectively, if consciously we talk about risk being volatility based, and I say my position is this, uh, you know I have a ten percent vol and I'm going to short ten percent. You know, I'm going to keep a ten percent vol and short the VIX. You're going to create uh, this bubble very very easily in the VIX. You don't need to do this on the VIX. If you look at equities, you look at fixed income. Over time, or the all-weather portfolio or risk parity, where positions are inversely sized to, uh, let's say, one-year, three-year, five-year uh, vol, the fact that people are uh, allocating 
let's say, to equities and the vol is coming down, they're constantly increasing their leverage and they're reinforcing that cycle. The same way, the leverage today in a 10 vol uh, risk parity product is 6 to 1, where at a peak in 2007, it was 4 to 1. In 2003, it was uh, about uh, 4 to 1 as well. Today, just the fact that people are chasing or uh, saying, you know, we agree, I'm going to put on 10% vol. You don't complain, I, it's stated. Now I go do this, and in the market, if I do it in a way where I'm timing my entries correctly, I can basically suck in a lot of quantitative traders in the process. So I'm saying in the VIX, very easy. I would say even in equities and fixed income, you have the same thing going on. If you buy the S&P when the realized vol is low, you typically lose money. When you buy the when the realized vol is high, you typically make money. And effectively, you can use volatility only uh, as a way to time the S&P or equity indices, just because of the way people are trading it and the way people are sizing their positions. Do you trade the, the VIX? Uh, we put on a tiny positions for, uh, as I said, mainly for entertainment. <laughs> so uh, we, uh, we look at, uh, we can extract convexity out of the market by trading Delta 1 futures. We don't need the, the VIX to, to get that. And if we want the negative skew, we can generate negative skew by trading Delta 1 as well. So models that bottom pick the S&P have sharp ratios of four and five in the last three years. Uh, again, we provide those for free. So we can, you can get that convexity without trading the VIX. But uh, we trade it out of, uh, how can I say, almost uh, you know, with a smile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that, so, so we started out the conversation today talking about 2017. Difficult year, learned a lot, lots of meditation, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you adopted or evolved or innovated during the period to, you know, to, to essentially overcome this low vol or, you know, the, the uh, compression of volatility that's, can you talk a little bit about what, what, um, and, and, and so how do you change a model like that yeah. with then, then out losing what your original profile and what you're known for to, to be able to actually make good money in a period where the S&P is still going up? Yeah. That's the million dollar question. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I'm glad we get that in now. So, uh, obviously, Oh, you know, you want to adapt? Did you learn anything? An investor tells you, says, uh, you know, no, we questioned ourselves substantially. We continue to believe that uh, we're aiming our strategy for a slightly higher level of vol. So we adapted, but not by taking away our positive convexity. Um, the way we adapted is by seeing what type of noise uh, is actually happening in the market. And so instead of trading certain time frames, we diversified our time frames where the typical noise, so suppose uh, you're running a 300-day moving average, and if the market goes up for 30 days and comes down for 30 days, you're exactly on the opposite cycle. Yeah. By diversifying your, uh, the time frames that you're trading short term, uh, going more intraday and slightly longer term, rather than a, a more focused uh, daily frequencies, uh, you're able to um, evolve, be less vulnerable to a type of noise which is in one frequency, yeah. which is what happened in 2017. So first, we diversified the, the frequencies that we're trading in the short term. So instead of like three days per trade, we're trading, you know, six hours, 12 hours, 30, that type of thing. One, 
Second is we uh, added a mean reversion component. So instead of being 100% long momentum, we're trading 130 long, 30% short. So without getting uh, to, you know, uh, effectively, we're saying uh, we want to take, uh, we want to provide liquidity in the market at certain times in order to hide our footprint. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, you can be momentum mean reversion neutral uh, and uh, provide liquidity at the same time that you're taking it at different times of the day and at different prices. Uh, so we're doing some of that effectively. So we went, uh, we increased our momentum and added some mean reversion because there's some uh, such obvious convexity plays on the short side as well. Where So we diversified uh, in the same way that an equity long short can typically achieve higher sharp ratio than the equity market alone. Yeah. And if we go back to the, what's maybe we could call it normality, because maybe mm -hmm. we feel that this current environment is a little bit, uh, you know, uh, unusual. Mm -hmm. If we go back to normality, would you then have to adjust back uh, to the way you uh, no used to uh, do our convexity today uh, expected convexity is the same that we've had in the last 20 years by uh, playing with time frames right. you can be trading uh, as much mean reversion as uh, momentum and still maintain your convexity except effectively uh, yeah it's a quail, it's a play of uh, time frames so you can be beta neutral uh, but have you can, the sizes of your exposures can be quite different uh, yeah. And Nicole, you talked a little bit about filtering. Could you maybe clarify a little bit more how you think about that and what you mean by filtering? And, so filtering and is like uh, the holy grail, uh, if you want. I mean, basically the alpha comes from filtering. So filtering uh, 15 years ago, uh, trade momentum or uh, trend following only when the vol is compressed. That's one way. That's the way it was. Uh, then maybe five, ten years ago, it was trade mo trade momentum in the direction of the negative skew, uh, and then option the skew in option pricing tells you that effectively, if a market starts to go down, there's going to be a trend. There's going to be a very strong drift. If the S and P starts to go down today, the market is expecting that it's going to lose twenty percent a year. That type of thing. So, can, so that's another way of filtering. So the market is telling you that if we go down, we're going to go down a lot. So okay, we'll go along with you, no questions. So do you think that there's more? You need to spend more time really thinking about that to, in today's markets as opposed to a few years ago. Is that sort of the the secret sauce? I guess uh, one might uh, say. You know, there's uh, there's more clarity gained around the way, not the way the markets are, but the way people trade. <laughs> I don't believe that the markets are a certain way that if you're long the S&P, you make 7% a year. And if you're long-term, you know, CTAs, you make 10% a year. It depends what people are thinking and the way people are trading. And the way to, on, on the run, evaluate the level of conviction and risk people are taking. Where, where is the surprise potential? So vol compression was 15, 20 years ago. Uh, convexity was 5, 10 years ago. Today, a lot of what we do is around crowding. Effectively, trade against whatever feels good, do the opposite. <laughs> and you can do this uh, looking at the relationship between the returns of different sectors within momentum. You can look at the, uh, you know, certain markets within a sector and assume that things are going to mean revert. So if it's uncomfortable, that's a good thing. Correct. I guess. If it's uncomfortable or, you know, uh, the way we're programmed to think, how, how does the way we are comfortable thinking lose money? That's why we, we bet on that. So today you can hire people out of undergrad who can run optimizations that quadruple PhDs couldn't do 20 years ago. The techniques available for optimization are like, you know, 
pretty much free. As a result, the way people are chasing returns and therefore reinforcing short-term bubbles and then breaking them down, how do the markets depattern themselves, is really critical, is changed. Uh, and uh, our job is to basically find ways to provide this convexity uh, with positive alpha at the same time by relying on what people are comfortable doing and trading against it in all time frames. It's available. You can hire 10 quants and they all tell you the same thing and you do exactly the opposite. Is there a risk in some ways that, you know, someone someone shared this with me and uh, I thought it was interesting. They, they looked at, if you look at the European uh, part of our industry and you look at the US part of our industry, uh, no doubt, uh, sort of late 90s, I think the Europeans overtook. They became, they, they were seen, the managers were seen as being more scientific, um, you know, and therefore a lot of institutional investors preferred that, uh, you know, over the US managers who were more seen as ex-floor traders who systematized their, uh, their, 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 their rules and, and, you know, whether it be turtles or, 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 or someone like that. But it also meant that a lot of the European managers were recruiting from universities to emphasize this scientific approach to investing. But of course, as we know, in the universities, they teach the same, they teach from the same books. Sure. So their approach to, for example, risk management, yeah. um, you know, perhaps are more similar than than what we think and in that you know they start looking very similar yeah. i mean i don't know it's not a it's not a study that i've done and it, it's not a it's it's not a right or wrong mm -hmm. but um but what you're saying is kind of do a little bit the opposite be the rebel and and in a sense if you recruit from the same university and they all end up doing the same thing you know maybe that's not down the route yet obviously with a few exceptions yeah. you know a lot of money is still flowing to, to those type of strategies. Sure. So there's uh, two aspects to, to that trade. First, universities don't teach you uh, what you need to know. They teach you what uh, recruiters want you to know in order to go sell their products. Mm -hmm. So th it's not necessarily uh, the best knowledge available. Right. It's, uh, you, know, uh, you know how it works. Okay. <laughs> Enough of that. Then uh, the, the next phase is the scientific phase where are we progressing scientifically in everyday life, again, um, investing is not something that can be managed through a scientific process. Absolutely not. It's a complex system where high conviction results in a pattern breaking. So if you hire a scientist that says, you know, people who wear white shirts typically go to the beach and people who wear black shirts are going out, whatever. You, you can do that in everyday life. It doesn't affect the process, but in investing, the more advanced uh, the, the science you need to do just to understand what people are thinking and feeling, mm. not because it gives you an idea of what the markets are going to do, mm. right? So it's very different. When everybody believes buying the S&P after two down days is 100% trade or 90% trade, then the, then the market depatterns. Mm -hmm. And science is not very good at figuring this out unless you're looking at the science of the mind, <laughs> where we're, you know, we're getting there. Another way for us to measure this is the level of conviction that people have in certain trading strategies. 
right? So you evaluate the, the behavior of the returns of different trading strategies that tells you how the people trading these are feeling <laughs> based on their short ratios. And you can do certain things with that, okay? So first, education is not ideal. It's, it's intentional. Yeah. It's not pure knowledge. Second, it's, uh, uh, there's cyclical and science will not understand markets. The poor Newton, uh, you know, was, I think was a good example of that. So you cannot have a purely rational mind when you're trading. You need to realize the cycles of emotions that investors are going through. At a certain stage, that might change. But the frustration today, so people are saying, you know, I want to invest with quant, is because they're frustrated with the macro managers who haven't done anything because central banks have made it impossible for them. But, you know, that's, again, a cycle where people will run away from quant and go back to the thinkers one day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, absolutely. You know, as we sort of head into 2018 with all the changes we've seen from, from different areas and, and certainly how it's impacted, as we already talked about, the, the markets uh, and, and different trading strategies, well, what are the opportunities? I mean, what are the opportunities that you see? What, how do you think about that? Um, it's never been cheaper to hedge. And today, you know, you need to have a very, very disciplined process. Relying on the recent returns as a way to predict the future is going to be very, very, very difficult, very painful, highly risky. So today, I would say investment has to be a process. We need to allocate X percent to CTAs. I know they've lost money. I know I don't like them. I know they have no, no beautiful story I can tell my investment committee. CTAs are still a very, very valuable part of any portfolio, even with flat returns over you know, uh, seven years, whatever it is. Uh, that needs to be understood and you need to stick to that discipline. Uh, in the market, what's happened since 2009 has been a one-sided thing. Uh, the sharp ratio on the S&P is something which has been unseen. The S&P is up 15 months in a row. It's unseen. Uh, never happened. These type of things uh, create very extremes in certain type of behavior in the market that CTAs are very, very, very well placed to take advantage of. So I see that the central banks are slowly starting to pull liquidity away from the market as basically is the first steps of that reversal, going into a regime where CTAs might make a lot of money for many years in a row. Right? That's very important. Um, that's the major factor that uh, I see as the, the opportunity. So going the other direction, because you focus on the things that are uncomfortable and sort of the tail risk out there, what, what are the things that you think are the threats? I mean, what are the things that keep you up at night? The worries, the, the things that, that sort of maybe people aren't thinking about mm -hmm. that you, you think are important? For CTAs. For CTAs and, and markets in general, just, you know, given uh, your positioning. and Crowding is much more than people think and much more than people want to admit because they don't want to scare investors. So for us, we're thinking so much in those terms and quite the opposite, telling investors, you know, the markets are really not liquid and this is what we see. And it's obvious, right? So it's almost like you can be a... You can be manipulating a stock and not tell your investors. You can say, by the way, we're manipulating a stock and we can see it and... We're doing it carefully or whatever. So uh, what we see is that CTAs have major impact in the markets, especially short term. We want to be transparent. We want to be honest with ourselves. The more honest with our, we are with ourselves, the more clarity we have in terms of how to deal with it and move forward from there. For me, that's the real danger. Ten years ago, nobody believed in CTAs. Nobody knew how to replicate a CTA. Today, we, you know, we provide 
a replicator for free to everyone as a formula. I mean, <laughs> today, as CTAs start to make money, it's possible that you'll see major inflows. And uh, so you have to catch up, you know, what the liquidity of the market is really there to support that type of trading or not. To me, that's the real driver of performance. You cannot just be a smart beta. You have to, at some stage, say that uh, certain places uh, convexity is too expensive and you want to actually be shorting it. I want to add something. I want to add one concern that I have, and that is because of the popularity of the smart beta programs and the flows into that, you know, because they are so similar, you know, there's only very few ways you can do basic trend following or replication or trend following. And I don't think investors really realize the exit risk that they have, you know, in that space. And it's, for me, definitely a concern to see that that, that part of the industry is growing so quickly just because it's cheap. Mm-hmm. So... Anyway, it's not really about me, but... Uh, it's actually uh, worse than that. It means uh, when the market is going to go up, if you look at channel breakout systems, they tend to make, a new, you know, in a lot of real trends, you have, uh, you know, let's say a 20-day high, the market makes a 20-day low, and a 20-day high five days later. So uh, you have very specific things going on uh, in the market, and in terms of cheap or expensive smart beta, you need to be aware how expensive it is to have the comfort of transparency. Right. So investment committees should know that, by the way, we're aware, you know, it's not a question that, you know, it's transparent and it's cheap. Make sure you realize that the fact that it's transparent and it's cheap is going to be a factor which is going to give us uh, the higher likelihood of negative alpha. When investment committees know that, uh, they'll think twice. They, they'll think twice. Yeah. I'm um, not saying it's bad, but it has no, to no. be. They have to know. They the have risk. to know it. I Correct. mean, it's part that's of the decision. I agree. I'd I still agree. would allocate yeah, to yeah. smart data. So let's turn it on the other way around. So what's the best? What's the best question these investors could be asking themselves right now? Really, uh, again, in today's world, I don't know how investors can evaluate hedge funds or CTAs without looking at multiple levels of convexity, different measurements of convexity. I have no idea how they can do that. It's just the, 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 there's zero risk otherwise. So uh, to me, that's the most important question. Again, as I said, because it drives the size of the drawdown. How many times your vault are you going to lose depends on your level of convexity. Investors should know that. And also, gonna, uh, how to evaluate uh, skill, which is uh, convexity-based versus, uh, sorry, alpha, which is convexity-based versus uh, alpha, which is skill-based. Skill-based alpha is, you know, stable. Convexity-based alpha is not. Mm-hmm. So to me, again, convexity, I'm, I'm using, it's, like, it's a simple word, but there's many w- different ways of doing it. Investors should be desperately looking to understand that factor. Yeah. So if you had one final thought to leave to investors or... And you couldn't use the word or, convexity. And you oh can't God. use the word convexity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> What, what would it be? What, what would you have? No, um, you are allowed. To okay, yeah. you can use it. I was just kidding. You were just yeah. kidding. I forget. <laughs> there, there's a quote. It's, um, uh, we have met the enemy and it is us. Something like that. In the investment world, that is more true than anywhere else. Interesting. Interesting. Nicole, always super interesting and ex- inspiring to have you on the podcast. Let's, on that note, wrap up this fascinating conversation recorded live here in Miami. Nicole, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and experiences with Katie and me. It is so important to have practitioners like you to share these ideas because 
When ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And to all our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying that I hope you got a lot of value from today's conversation and that you enjoyed it as much as Katie and I enjoyed making it for you. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues so that the conversation can continue. From me, Niels Kostrolarsen and Katie Kaminsky, Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged. And in the meantime, go check out all the amazing free resources that you can find on our website. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.